like a, a little funny intro thing. Just yeah, no, that's fine. We need that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Can anybody hear me? <clears throat> oh, Hello. we hear you. Hello, <laughs> Hello friends. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Doing okay. You can hear me okay? Yeah, yes. we can hear you. Lovely. I, I'm I'm constantly worried that my little setup here is going to fail me, which would be bad because, uh, you know, this is how book tours work now is you just hop on your USB mic and <laughs> log into Zencaster, I suppose, or Zoom, <laughs> and, uh, whether it's live or taped. So nice. I'm, I'm, uh, this is what it all lives and dies on. Well, I'm so glad that we can make this work. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. super excited. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited too. I I love the concept of the pod, and uh, you know, as long as you guys don't turn out to be like KKK members or something. I haven't done a ton of research into you, so you know, I'm, I'm going on faith here. My my partner was pointing that out. She was like, uh, I was telling her the story of how this ended up getting set up. And she's like, sounds great, but like, are they like horrible misogynists or something? You should probably check that. And I was like, yeah, we'll find out. But, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, uh, I'm very stoked to do it. Uh, two of my favorite topics right in the title. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's what we're all about. Yeah. Oh, I love the little, is that cat ears on the headphones? (laughs) (laughs) It's very trendy. I love it. How you know we're professionals. Uh, Well, well, true. But that's my third favorite topic is cats. I have three of them. So comics and chronic and cats, that would be, uh, that'd be the real next level. This is awesome. All right. Well, uh, if you're ready, we'll get into it. Yeah, let's rock and roll. All right. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to Comics and Chronic. Today, we have a very special episode. As always, I am joined by my co-hosts, Anthony Iannaccio and Cody Willaka-Cannon. Today, we have our very first guest. Uh, He is a journalist, a writer, an author. He's worked for Wall Street Journal, Vice, New York Magazine, and he has a book out right now called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Please welcome to the show, Abraham Reisman. (laughs) Very exciting. I thought you said I'm joined as always. Aren't there only like two episodes of this podcast so far? (laughs) Yeah, you know. uh... I'm not dissing. I just was making sure that I got the timeline right. (laughs) You released the third one yesterday. (laughs) Okay, great. All right. Mazel tov. Very exciting. Thank you. Oh, man. Well, uh, welcome to the show. It's really cool to have you here, actually. I'm glad to be here. You know, I when when we put out, should we tell the story of how I ended up here? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Awesome. So I, you know, I've got this book coming out, um, uh, and I, you know, the way you do these things now, especially during COVID, is you just have to get as much media as you can because book tours are not really a thing anymore. Um, so you know, I put out the APB and was just like anybody, you know, who basically I put out the ABB that I wanted media coverage. Certain friends of mine had me on their podcasts and I started to realize that the best interviews I was getting were on like these rando podcasts with no, with like no long standing gigantic legacy. Um, <laughs> for whatever reason, those were, those were just where the good questions were coming from. And also it was much more casual and, and fun. And so I just tweeted something about how, you know, if you have a rando podcast, uh, invite me on. And you, you all were the only people who just replied to it. You were the only ones who shot. <laughs> <and> shot. 
<laughs> yes. like, I, I meant it and nobody took me up except for the at comics and chronic uh, <laughs> Twitter handle, which uh, tweeted at me like, Hey, we're as small time as it gets. You want to have us? <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, me being a longtime stoner and longer time reader of comic books, uh, it seemed like it was a match made in heaven. So I'm really <laughs> glad that we could make this work. And and uh, yeah, here we are. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't get as, as as any more grassroots than us. Grassroots, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No right. pun intended, but now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm I'm honestly like so glad you responded. You know, I like you said, we just shot our shot, and it it worked. You know, I I saw the tweet, I favorited it. I was like, uh, maybe I'll try like left it alone for like 20, 30 minutes. And I'm like, all right, let's try. And you immediately yeah. answered. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> well, I just, I, you know, I, I feel like the reason I don't lose my mind in the world in general is like, you know, look, I've got a, a verified check mark. I've worked, <laughs> I've worked for like a legacy media organization. I, I know the New York media world very well. So I like have those people in my life. But I feel like the the reason I don't, you know, completely become a, a horrible monster is I try to interact with as many like low follower accounts on Twitter as I can, like just interacting with people who are not, you know, part of that shitty, weird ecosystem where we pretend that people who just happen to have lots of followers and, you know, a verification badge are somehow a different breed of human being. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I was really glad you guys got in touch just because I, I don't know. Also, it, I like to think of myself as sort of having the Barack Obama model for what I'm <laughs> pushing in my book, which is like small dollar donors, you know, like I'm, I'm going for people who have like less than a thousand followers who like the stuff that I like. Let's get them to buy the book. If I can do that on Moss, that's that's better than just trying to target like the elites who may or may not uh, be interested. You know, right? So, no, anyway, Martin. Yeah. Well, we'll find out if it's smart. It's, it's been fun, at least. I've, I've enjoyed being in contact with people like that. But we'll see if it pays off for the book. Well, when it comes to low follower accounts, you came to the right place. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm so stoked. That's exactly what I wanted. No, but but I, I don't mean that as a diss. I really mean no, no, like it's just it uh, someday you'll have more followers, I'm sure. But I'm getting in on the ground floor. Nice. So so I guess I, I have two questions to start off with being as this, as this is comics and chronic. Are you smoking anything right now? No, you know, I was debating that. I was thinking, like, should I vape beforehand? If you guys want me to, I'm happy to. Oh, I, we're not going to force you to do drugs. Yeah, because no. <laughs> I don't want to come off like okay. that. <laughs> if, you, if you, well, I don't. If if we can pause it for a second, I can go get my vape. I don't know, or you guys can riff while I do that. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you think? We'll, we'll awesome. riff and vape as, as well. Okay, give me one sec. I'm gonna go get. I'm gonna go get something. Sure. <laughs> to all you listeners, we are holding for Abraham to get his vape. Yes. Yeah. We want By the way, to be comfortable uh, and high on the show. Right. But if you're like a friend and you come on the show, we're not waiting for you. You don't get this. Yeah. You don't get this treatment. We don't have patience with our friends. Only people yeah. we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So. Uh. But yes. Um. I'd like to talk. Take a moment to talk about the book. Uh. It was yeah. a fantastic book read so far. Um. There's an excerpt that was released today. Today. Uh, today. Or uh, last week, depending. Last on. week. <laughs> when you're listening to this. Right. Yeah. We'll edit that out. 
Yes, <laughs> I'm terrible with time, and just that's just <laughs> believe it at that. I'm terrible with time. <laughs> We're back. One sec. Nope. <laughs> Coming back. Get the old headphones on. Okay. I've got my branded uh, Tribe Tokes. Whoa. Shout out to Tribe Tokes. Ooh, nice. Is, that, is that showing up reverse? Yeah. Uh, it's a cool little switchblade. Unfortunately, the switchblade part is is uh, broken. I have another one where it's not broken, but I can't find that one. So you do the, it like just looks like some weird little thing in your pocket and then oh, whoa. Yeah. that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> that is neat i believe this is a, i can't remember what capsule is or cartridges is i believe it's a sativa of some kind i pretty much exclusively do sativa because nice. if i do i just fall immediately asleep yeah I, I have a very powerful reaction to it indigo which can be fun but yeah it's not fun for an interview yeah. or, or really you know doing work or anything being so productive like, am i anyway. telling you what an indica is you guys know what indica is <laughs> yeah. giving you the rundown of that i assume you're listening do as well <laughs> yeah i uh i'm a sativa i like hybrids too because sometimes sativa make me nervous yeah like anxiety inducing i don't know i'm an indigo guy myself i'm a sativa mm, fair guy. Enough. I, I need energy yeah yeah me too i just I, I i like to be at least somewhat productive when i'm stoned as opposed to just like completely instantly falling asleep, which, yeah. you know, even if productive just means like watching an old Japanese noir on Criterion or something, nice. like that's, that's better than just like the, I love how the smoke is now involved yeah. this entire Zoom, <laughs> all the zoom windows. We can just <laughs> smoke and vapor. Yeah. This is great. I have to say, this is the first time I've ever like publicly only in the past like year and a half or so have I started like being open about the fact that I smoke pot or vape, whatever that I, that I use cannabis. Um, yeah. I was very like ashamed of it for a long time. I grew up, I was like the one kid in health class who like really listened and like incorporated <laughs> all of the messages about how you shouldn't do drugs because it's going to ruin your life. So then like, you know, I started, I didn't really start getting into regularly doing it until I, well, I didn't do it at all until I was done with high school. Like I was a big prude in high school and just didn't touch Same. any substance whatsoever. Same. I was just like constantly worried that I was going to lose my productivity and my edge. I was very overly competitive. And then when I got to college, I did it like sometimes in college, a few times. I had some like pleasant memories, but I didn't like have any. It was just, if somebody else had some, it would be an interesting experience. And about a year after I graduated college, you know, a friend of mine was like, we were, we were like smoking a joint on my roof, looking at the stars. And she was like, you know, you, you can just like buy this yourself, right? Like I can just give you the number of my dealer. And I was like, you can just do that. Like, I just always assumed that it was going to be more of a process. Like I'd have to like go down some, you know, rabbit hole of asking people questions, to, like get the answers, and, like go to a bar and like grab somebody and smash them to the table. And be like, where's a dealer? I need to buy some weed. <laughs> um, it was, it turned out to be really easy. It was just like, she gave me the phone number and I called them up and, um, you know, that, so that's what, 2009, something like that. And then subsequent to that, you know, I've had periods where I've been like, I got to stop, I hate it and I'll, you know, quit it for a bit and then get back to a much, you know, a healthier relationship with it. And it's, it's been an interesting journey to go on because really only, like I said, in the past like year and a half, couple of years, have I started like openly talking about it with people and it's unbelievably liberating. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it hasn't actually held me back. <laughs> One of the big turning points for that was like I, when I finished the when I finished the first draft of the book, when I finished the manuscript, you know, it, that year when I wrote it, I had um, left work full time. I was no longer full time at New York Magazine because mm -hmm. I wanted to 
you know, write, write the book. I needed to have that, that space. So I, I was smoking more pot or vaping or whatever, more than like I ever had before. And yet it was the most productive and professionally successful like year of my life. I up until then, like I wrote oh. this researched and wrote this entire book and it went really well. And I was just like, maybe, maybe like this isn't something worth feeling ashamed of. Like <laughs> you can get frustrated with it. Like if you're doing it too much and it's getting in the way of something, but like Definitely. it's been very interesting and liberating to sort of let go of the idea that I should like hate that I like pot, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I totally get that. Cause like, you know, when Jake, Jake's the one that came up with the name of the podcast comics and chronic mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I love doing this, but there was kind of a hesitation with the chronic part. Like, you know, sure. maybe my family's listening or whoever's listening, <laughs> you know? but I, literally as soon. And again, back to your tweet, as soon as you did that, I was like, huh, maybe there's just something to just openly being about, you know, chronic. I think you know? It, well, that's the thing is like, you know, I've had the healthiest relationship I've ever had with pot has come after I sort of let go of the shame of going, I, I hate doing this. I hate myself for mm. doing it. You know, once you can sort of just incorporate it as part of your life, then you can regulate it and modulate it in a much healthier way. You're absolutely. not operating in that dichotomy of like, you know, of absolutely none or way too much. You can just sort of find, find your way. And, um, yeah, so I was I was excited to be on the podcast just because I never get to talk about pod. It's like a huge part of my life, and like I talk about it one way street wise, like on Twitter, yeah. like occasionally it's sort of part of the personal brand. As I'll tweet about uh, weed vaping, whatever. Um, and and yeah, it's it's very rarely a dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. like I I, want, I have friends who are like very dear to me in no small part because they're like in the small select group that I feel like gets my experience with pot because mm-hmm. they share it and we can have a conversation about. It. Um, and, and yet, you know, you know, more public forum, this is, is alien to me, but I feel like, I don't know, I'm doing it for my own self gratification, but also I just, I like being able to spread the message of like, Hey, everybody have a healthy relationship with pot as opposed to like getting caught in the mental, um, you know, ditch that you can get into when you're, you're just not you're not thinking clearly about yourself or its influence on you or whatever. Um, Absolutely. You know. Yeah. So anyway, I agree. Yeah. yeah. When I, I like started, that. when I started smoking weed, my mom and dad didn't even try to tell me not, not to, they just told me like, mm-hmm. if I'm going to start, ask my older brother and sister how to do it. So that way they can show me. Right. So I'm not some idiot. The right. first joint I ever rolled, I was like 15 and I did it with toilet paper because I didn't know. <laughs> and my mom <laughs> caught me. And, a real party with that. Yeah. And my mom <laughs> caught me and she wasn't even like, like mad, she was just like disappointed in my stupidity. I guess. <laughs> yeah, the that's first, so funny. The first joint I ever rolled, I was like sixteen, and I didn't know you had to break up the weed before roll. So I just oh nice, just like wrapped as like a burrito of yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, I I I never figured out how to roll joints. That is like the one part of weed culture that is. Go- it's the same way I can't put in contact lenses. Uh, I just, <laughs> for whatever reason, those two tasks, which would make my life a lot easier in some ways or, or in some cases more fun. I just can't do my hands like that. Stubby crooked fingers. It just can't be done. It's impossible. Yeah, I know. Well, it, for me, I just, I don't know what it is. My fingers aren't even that bad. I just, the hand eye coordination. What can I say? It takes a lot of practice. Like I always hated rolling a joint, but I just forced myself to do it. Like it's still like, it's always sure. spilling out. And like, it's always just, I don't know. There's like an anxiety part about it if you can't get it right. But once you get the tuck and roll, 
Like you could do the it every time. The tuck and it's roll. All about. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Yeah, I remember watching uh, a how-to tutorial early on when I was smoking pot like, regularly when I started buying it for myself. There was like this online tutorial video, I believe from Donnie Danko. And I remember watching it. And this like guy doing, he was like enacting it. He wasn't, there was a narrator and that narrator wasn't him. He was just doing the kind of like infomercially type like, Hmm, what am I going to do here? But without saying that, just like, hmm. <laughs> and it was, I, I found it adorable as a short film, but I learned nothing from it. I could, not, I could not make myself actually get these things right. They always just looked like these misshapen little Cheetos. And they didn't burn right. So what are you going to do? So, so Abraham, I guess one of my questions first is, and I, I'm sure you got to ask this, but out of all like the pop culture icons, what made you choose mm. Stan Lee in particular to do it? Well, it's funny. I, I didn't, in both cases of the article that preceded this book and the book itself, it did not begin with me pitching. Um, it, I had been, I mean, I've been a comics reader since I was a kid and a Marvel consumer, even before I was a comics consumer, just watching the cartoons yeah. back in the early nineties. Um, and then in, uh, I sort of dropped off in comics around college. I was still reading some, but you know, I, I kind of fell off with a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, in my late twenties, I got back into comics, and then around then got a job at New York Magazine, and started writing about comics. Just because you know, one of the great privileges of being a journalist is you can sometimes explore things that you find interesting in a professional context. Mm. And that can really make for good work if you, if you do it right. So I was very excited about comics again, cause I hadn't been reading them for a long time. And, you know, I, you know, the short version is I, I read on, at the urging of a friend at a party, I, I read uh, Grant Morrison's Super Gods, the book, um, his like weirdo book about like the history of comics yeah. slash like his alien abductions slash the tarot significance of 9-11. Like oh it's a God. very weird book. Grant Morrison, what the fuck? I know, I know, man. Um, uh, and I, but I read it and was kind of, even though a lot of it was completely bonkers, I was like, oh, that's right. I like this kind of bonkers. <laughs> like this is sort of what I go for. And I forgot that comics can do that for you. And also he's just writing so lovingly about the comics medium. And, well, really just superheroes, I guess, mm-hmm. but su- superheroes more generally. Um, comic stuff obviously widely overlaps there. So I read that, got energized again. Uh, and then a few months after that, got the job at New York Magazine. A few months after that, I pitched doing a story um, on Marvel. It wasn't even a reported story. This was just an essay. Um, and it was really a take. I, I'm very embarrassed of it now. There's nothing like factually wrong in it. It's just like I was being kind of a whiny little bee. Um, and it's, it's like not. It's like a good piece of writing, but it did really well because it was 2013 and like hot takes about Marvel and diversity yeah. were like, you know, that was high. Cur- that was good currency to have. To be clear, I was in favor of the diversity. Gotcha. I was not complaining about diversity. This was uh, saying that, like, <laughs> the, that Marvel's uh, comics output had been more progressive in recent years or months um, than the MCU output. This is like mm-hmm. late 2013, fall 2013. Uh, I believe the occasion was the launch of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the show. So it's a very different time in the history of the MCU and right. sort of the popular conception of the MCU mm-hmm. and uh, end of Marvel as a brand. Because like now I would I would be shocked 
if I saw somebody on comics Twitter, you know, progressives on comics Twitter praising Marvel for basically anything, like <laughs> there's been this real dramatic yeah. drop off of of good faith and goodwill uh, among the fandom for Marvel. But at the time, sure, there were like haters, but it was still kind of a um, like a, a slobs versus snobs thing. Um, Sorry, I was getting distracted there. But um, uh, the MC, sorry, I, I should turn this off because I'm stoned and I'm going to keep seeing these little <laughs> notifications come up and they're going to keep bothering me. <laughs> anyway, so oh, I can't figure out how to do it. So um, anyway, I, I got to write this article yammering about diversity and, you know, I was on the right side of history, but I just was being kind of a ponce. Um, and I, it did really well. And then after that, I wrote another one, then another one, then another one. And it turned into this little niche that I built um, at Vulture, which I, I still can't believe happened. It's the luckiest thing that ever happened to me in my life. Um, and I just started writing about the comics industry. And so, I, you know, I, it started with essays, takes, and then it turned into takes that were like slightly reported. Like I wrote a thing about how great um, Days of Future Past, the original comic was when uh, Days of Future Past, the movie was coming out. Uh -huh. And like... I just thought, you know, there's some questions I don't have answered. I, I guess I could just call Chris Claremont. <laughs> like, if there's one thing that I've learned in my years of doing comics journalism, one thing that is more important, I think, for fans to understand than anything else is these guys are not just guys. These people are not famous. Like, these people that we assume yeah. are right. powerful and influential, wealthy, whatever, the people who make comic books are not. They're none of those things. They are awesome in a lot of cases. Other cases, they're complete douchebags. Mm -hmm. But no matter who you are, no matter who you are, unless you were Stan Lee and maybe Rob Liefeld or Tom, Todd McFarlane, yeah. you, you are not famous. You're not actually famous in, an, in a global mainstream sense. And you're almost certainly not wealthy because the industry pays shit. Yeah. Um, so it, it became this interesting experiment where like I realized – all of these great creators, I, I could basically just call like you. Sometimes it took a slight bit of doing to like find an in there, but you really could just find their email addresses like on their personal websites or you could once you got like one person in the comics world, they all know all of each other. So you mm -hmm. can just like say, hey, could you link me up with, you know, Louise Simonson or something? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, and then Wheezy will hook you up with Karen Berger. And like it's just this this web of all these these luminaries. And the point is they're all like going off of like Earthlink addresses and are like not <laughs> not, not None of this is like oh through God. a publicist. Like I did, I did some work with publicists, but it was always just because the project was officially Marvel. It was not because of the person. Like these people don't necessarily want publicists uh, or you know feel more comfortable being more direct, and that's how it often happens. So you know, I'm going off on a tangent, but that was how the Chris Claremont thing happened, and that was, I believe, the beginning of me reporting stuff in the comics world. I just wanted to have his perspective and. And there was like a, a, you know, one where I was talking about Thanos and I just called Jim Starling, <laughs> you know, the guy who invented yeah. Thanos. You can just do this. I, any of you could do this if you wanted. Yeah. Like yeah. it's really, really easy to get in touch with comics creators. Not all of them, you know, but more than you'd think. Yeah. Um, especially the older guys because they come from a time when the stuff was there really There was no Twitter and everything too either. So like no, I don't think no. like, okay, I, I actually looked up Kevin Eastman on yeah, Twitter. Sure. And he does not have that many followers. Right. For the dude no, who created no. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. It's, it's like, no, it's it's completely bonkers. Yeah. Like this is my this is my big crusade 
in writing about comics. I'll just lay out my my secret master plan here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the nun in Game of Thrones walking alongside. <laughs> Shame. Yeah, walking alongside the comics ma- management of the comics industry and the executives who pull the strings and just saying, shame, shame, shame. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just seeing how completely exploitative this industry is and how we're just not allowed to say that for some reason. Yeah. Like, if you do, you get marginalized and, like, you, I mean, this is. This is why I was really lucky. I was at a mainstream outlet in a staff job where comics were not a big part of the ecosystem. So therefore relying on like comics advertisers was not in any way anything we had to worry about. I had this perfect position to be able to like start poking holes. And I, I, you know, I wish I'd done it more. It took me a while to really work up the courage to have that be like a thing I do consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hard. There are times when you have to do a delicate dance because it's a company that, you know, you, you do want to be able to report on in the future. It's not the same amount of pressure as like the average uh, comics blog where like they have to just, you know, completely brown nose every comics publisher because that's their only source of, of revenue. Mm-hmm. Right, For me, it was just right. sort of beat maintenance. Like it might be harder to report on this beat if I alienate this source. So, you know, now I'm giving you the behind the scenes about how journalism works. <laughs> <laughs> I will, no, I'm going off on a tangent again. This is my bad habit, especially when I get stoned. No, but, no, um, it's all good. But, uh, you know, I had this position where I had the opportunity to really – Uh, report on what actually happens in the comics industry and learn. Because again, I had had a number of years off where I was just not participating with it, uh, with the comics industry in any kind of direct way um, or consistent way. And then I'm like jumping back in and I I had so much to learn. I'm a quick study, but it was a real process of like, you know, at first um, joy that I could talk to these people that I'd admired for so long or who had created characters that had meant so much to me or told stories that meant so much to me. And then after a while, and so that powered a lot of the early writing and research was just like, wow, this is amazing. And then like talking up the great comic stories that informed uh, the movies that were coming out. That was, that was the big thing that allowed me to get a lot of work done was writing about like, here's the comics backstory of movie X or character Y. And that's honestly Um, what we're trying to do with the podcast. You know, we always try to incorporate a specific comic or storyline that we could talk about in conjunction with whatever movie we're doing each week. So totally, exactly. I mean, and that's, that's, that was exciting to me and it was really fun. But what happens is over the course of talking uh, with creators and executives and editors and everybody else in that ecosystem, um, the more you do these like, wow, the comic story was really great stories. The more you realize that all those stories incorporate like, and then this unbelievably unjust exploitative thing happened Mm -hmm. to the creator. Mm -hmm. And that's why they don't make comics anymore. Or like, and then, you know, this deal was completely welched on or like, and then this person was an abusive, toxic force in the workplace. And this was, I mean, and then of course there's the sexual harassment and, and, mm-hmm. and assault. And it's just, there's so much bad stuff that happens in the comics industry, in this industry that makes stuff that you and I love so dearly. It really started to get to me. And so that was kind of the direction that things started to go in. Not hard left turn. Like I said, I still had to maintain the beat, mm-hmm. but like- you know, I wrote this profile of Stan. We're getting back to the actual question you asked me. <laughs> I think it's important that you know all the stuff I just oh, said because it informs where I'm coming from for yeah. the next part, which is, uh, you know, it's August 2015. Um, one of the editors at New York Magazine, a guy named David Wallace Wells, who's a 
fucking genius. Just a great, great writer and reporter and an even better editor. He wrote this book about climate change called The Uninhabitable Earth that either you should read or never touch because it will completely freak your shit out. Um, but it's, nice. it's amazing. It's one of the most amazing books I've ever read. So anyway, um, uh, he walks up to my desk and he had he was an editor and he had a galley copy of an advanced copy of uh, Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, Stan's 2015 graphic memoir, which was really just, as I learned later, just he didn't really have much to do with it. It was just an adaptation of his pre-existing prose memoir from a number of years earlier. <laughs> of course. Um, but uh, David walks up to my desk, slaps it down, and says, you should do something with this. Because by that point, I'd been writing about comics and comics adaptations for a while. And immediately, my little idea bulb lights up and I'm like, this is great. Like, this is such a cool opportunity. So I, I said, sure, absolutely. And I, I spent the next week like looking for sources and uh, reading existing material, trying to get an interview with Stan, all this stuff. About a week in, um, I go talk to David and I said, hey, you know, it's going really well. I'm getting a lot of interesting stuff. And before I could get like more than like a minute into my spiel, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait, wait. I meant you should like write a short review of this book. Mm-hmm. Like there, he had not been assigning me the feature that I had just invented in my head that I was now going to do. I just completely, you know, misread the the cue. But to his credit, and I will be eternally grateful for this, his response was then to say, like, you turn up some interesting stuff. Go, go. Let's see if we can make this into a feature. Nice. So it took a long while. I know it's like one of these great journalism stories. You very rarely get to say that stuff like that happens to. But I'm I'm glad it happened in this case. So then um, I worked on it. It, it took a long time because the how long did really it take time. between the research and the actual writing of the book to like complete this of the book yeah so the well the research of the article is kind of the beginning of the research for the book and so that's again like august 2015 the article came out february 2016 um and then i had a couple of years where i wasn't really you know, thinking about Stan all that much. Uh, I was following loosely the news of all the horrible things that were happening in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was not like keeping fresh on the beat. Um, and then um, uh, he died in in November of 2018. And uh, this editor at Crown Publishing, which is a, a an imprint of Penguin Random House, um, got in touch with my agent and was like, you know, I read the Stanley profile from 2016. Do you think your client might want to expand that out into a biography? And I was very intimidated. I almost said no. I was just, because <laughs> I, I had other plans. Like there were other things going on in my life. This was not something that I was building up to. And I yeah. felt like I'd kind of, I was also trying to transition away from writing about comics all the time. You know, I was trying to write about other topics as well. And so initially I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I had like multiple friends just sort of slap sense into me and be like, the fuck is wrong with you? This <laughs> <laughs> publisher in the English language came to you to ask you to write the book. Like you fucking do the book. So uh, that was the right answer. And I uh, got, you know, I'd write an outline, but it, it, you know, was, was a pretty smooth process. Started the research in, in earnest around December of, uh, of that year when it became clear that the book was actually going to happen. Um, I guess it was even earlier maybe November. Anyway. Um, so, uh, then it was about a year of research, almost exactly a calendar year from when I got the contract and really started doing the research to when I turned in the first draft. Um, so that year was kind of the sprint. Um, uh, but there had been, I was able to do it cause there had been buildup of that whole six month period in 2015, 2016. And, you know, subsequently there's still been a lot to do, but it's, it's not quite the same, um, total, you know, horse blinders on thing. Hmm. 
It's yeah, really interesting to hear about that process. It's just, I mean, so just because it, I'm, it's not like you're saying it fell into your lap, but it's something that you weren't really I was very lucky. I mean, it was, no, I was extremely lucky. Like I, I also am good at my job. I've been doing journalism for 15, 16 years now. Um, it's the only real like career that I've, I've had. Um, but you know, I'm also just fortune turned its wheel in my direction and I'm sure it'll turn back again at some point. That's the anxious Jew in me talking. About, you know. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to embrace it as much as I can. And this was, that, that was very much both the, the original art initial article and the, um, the book were really, I'm really indebted to my editors, David, and then at crown, uh, a guy named uh, Will Wolfslow, who is just terrific. Nice. We, um, we, I was really lucky to have editors I really gelled with and who really were, con they were both more confident in me than I was confident in me, uh, specifically in terms of like using voice, like having it be uniquely sounding like me and kind of just riffing and coming up with grand theories um, rather than just sticking to exact recitation of facts. Uh, not, not saying anything that's not factual, but just, you know, going beyond just, just presenting the information. Mm -hmm. Both of them really encouraged me to go like, this is your showcase, like go for it. I mean, the, the article was the longest thing I'd ever published up to that point. It was about 10,000 words. Um, and then the book obviously is, is far and away the longest thing I've ever written. Um, and you know, to have that opportunity and the opportunity to have editors who really encourage me to make it sound like my own, um, is I, I'm, it's incalculable. I'm, I'm so unbelievably grateful that all that has happened. I want to, I want to go back to your, your anxious Jew comment. Yes, please. <laughs> I too am Jewish, so I I have nice. to live with that burden every day. But <laughs> tell him a laugh. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I said shalom alechem. You're then supposed to say alechem shalom. Okay. It's like salam aleikum, aleikum salam. Uh, okay. Okay. You'll you'll get it next time. I'll get it. I, I was also adopted into Judaism, so unfortunately, oh cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes me feel a little more chosen. But I want to go back. Because <laughs> that's a good line. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, have you ever read Crack Out to Krypton by uh, Ari Kaplan? Not the whole thing, but I've, I've read parts of it. Because uh, I like what you were saying earlier about how, especially more so in the day that the comic book industry was really exploitive of mm -hmm. creators and them not getting their credit. I know Joel Schuster. Um, oh, yeah. Siegel and Schuster yeah. is a whole other tragic yeah, story. They yeah. never got the credit until I think. Was it the 70s? Yeah, 70s. I believe it was the 70s. Um, yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, that's a whole other awful story, but it's emblematic. I mean, that kind of stuff was just the the order of the day for decades. And to a certain extent, it still is. Yeah. It's, it's slightly more professional now, but not by much. And you still have like ridiculous shit that people get away with. Um, and awful treatment for people who are being unjustly discriminated against or just treated like garbage because the people in charge are even bigger garbage. Right. You know, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but saying all that, I don't think anyone could actually reasonably disagree with, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. once you know about the inner workings of this industry, there's no way to talk about it honestly and not be, sound like you're just anti-comics, which I am not. <laughs> I think the comics <laughs> medium the comics medium is one of the most amazing, life-changing things you can possibly imagine. I mean, even calling it, regarding it like that just seems too small. Yeah. Like saying it's great doesn't convey that it's just this, 
it's it's magic. It's it's words and pictures. It's a, a something that's existed in some form since time immemorial, and now we have this set of idioms that are just fascinating. I love I love comics so much, and it just fucking rips me apart that the industry is so bad. Yeah, like it, it's just you have abusers and harassers and you know, uh, people who are, you know, racists and it just awful, you know, and you get like, that's not even getting into like comics game, you know I mean? uh, Where like you have the creators who are like still working despite the fact that they're in that, that world. Um, Mm. you know, it's, it's, it's really wretched in a lot of ways, but there are so many good people in it. Now, a lot of bad people, but like the, the people who, are like truly from the cloth of the good comics geek um, who make it in that industry, even though making it in that industry is not the same as making it in the wider world. Mm-hmm. It's still really gratifying to see. And more important, just from a selfish perspective, there are a lot of geniuses out there who make stuff that I'm just glad exists. I would love, I am not, not I am not, not on team comics. I am just very much on team comics, creators and consumers, as opposed to, you know, uh, the the big kahunai and and the, the the you know the bad people in the bunch. I shouldn't say bad people. I hate calling people bad, but you know what I mean. Bad behavior. Uh, yeah. Um. What is it about the comics industry that you do you think makes this so easy to get away with? Well, nobody's paying a fucking attention. That's the thing. Like the, the number one reason they get away with it is nobody's paying attention. The people who are actually paying attention don't have any power or resources. Like you know, you have a lot of wonderful comics commentators and and journalists, bloggers, whatever, who are very aware of what's going on. Sometimes they're misguided, but like they're deeply plugged in and they could be writing great investigative journalism about the comics industry, but they are not, nobody is funding that, Mm. you know, I, I, I mean, I've never even been able to do that. Like I, I won't get into details, but like, there's always this question of, is this worth the potential legal risk mm-hmm. of going after X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. And so, so sorry, is there like comes, some like well-known people? Like, obviously I'm not asking you to name anybody. I'm not going to name yeah, names, but there are definitely yeah. people out there who are still completely enshrined and are just have done wretched, awful things. And some of them are, you know, things I know about because I'm sourced. Mm-hmm. Some of them are just out in the open. And yet yeah. for some reason, nobody suffers any consequences. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of people like that. It's really, really bad. Um, it's especially bad for women and people of color as mm-hmm. you and, and trans people. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know – the stuff I hear about, like anti-Semitic stuff, that comes up in, in it, I mean, it's not that's not a ton of it. No, but, but like, in a recent issue, that, of- and then there was that, there was that incredible Hulk, yeah. uh, Immortal Hulk yep. thing. Yeah, exactly. Which just like, how does nobody catch that? I know. Like, how how do you? Hey, what's, not- the, what's this Immortal Hulk thing? Oh God! Well, it's a whole oh. rabbit hole. But there was a panel in the most recent issue of Immortal Hulk where Joe Bennett drew this Jewish jewelry store in the jewelry district. And it has this like window that has this giant Magen David, like Star of David, yeah. right there, and it says jewelry, not jewelry. Yeah. Oh shit! And, <laughs> like someone's head or something is covering exactly like. Uh, yeah, it's no, no. Uh, someone's head is covering a different letter. The letter that you can see very clearly that there uh, is no L. It's just right, says right, jewelry. Right. It's not that big a deal, but it's just like in and of – I'm saying as a Jew, I feel like I, I'm allowed to slightly discount that. Like I didn't read it and feel like threatened or anything. It was just sort of like, what the fuck? How did this end up in here? How did this go past 
all these eyeballs and nobody saw this thing that like even if it was unintentional is right. really offensive and something similar happened with uh, x-men gold number one like a few years oh, yeah back. yeah no well that that was to their credit not in their defense rather i should say x-men gold number one was a weirder situation because the um the main stuff in there was anti-christian from an indonesian perspective because the artist the penciler was indonesian so he was slipping in messages from this uh, slogans rather from this campaign against i believe it was a regional governor or maybe a mayor who was christian and the muslim wow. population like would say you know some members of that would say awful things so those were up there i would be shocked if somebody was able to detect that stuff there was right, right. like i feel like you kind of get a pass for yeah. missing out on like hyper specific racist slogans or bigoted slogans from around the world. But there was that Kitty Pride thing in that same issue. I didn't I did not read that as anti-Semitic personally. I, I thought that was it didn't even seem anti-Semitic, whether or not, let alone whether it was intended as such. But the point is with uh Joe Bennett recently, it was just a reminder that A comics are put together so slapdash and so quickly with so little oversight, um, which is something to remember and is kind of an emperor has no clothes moment. And the other thing is just that people are not trained. These are not very often. These are people who are not training themselves Mm -hmm. or have not been trained to think about, um, you know, marginalized identities while they're not that, I mean, Jews, it gets complicated when you say marginalized, but like minority groups, groups that have historically been uh, targeted by bigotry and bigoted imagery, Mm -hmm. which Lord knows in comics, you know, there's a long tradition of that. You got to try and excise that part. Absolutely. Oh God, sorry. I'm just going off on a rant right now, but like, it's, it's just, I also feel like because going back to like holding these people accountable that because it's not like uh like when we were talking about how no one knows who these people are these artists and these writers it's harder to put a face to them so it's not like actors and musicians that you can hold them accountable so easily in the public eye so they they probably do tend to get away with more well and then think right and then the thing that also complicates it is like if somebody does do something bad because the industry is so terrible and so many of these people are you know like the point is you can oh god i lost my train of thought damn it this is my number one problem when i smoke pot everything else i'm so lucid my memory doesn't really go but i will just have these moments where like i get distracted by a moat in my eye and then abruptly mm. it's like the train has completely jumped the track so i'm gonna ask you what i said although it, i remember it being somewhat uh uh rough but what, what was i saying um Shit, we're, are we all we're too all stoned? That's yeah. <laughs> fine. It doesn't matter. It's just more of me ranting about how the comics industry is terrible. Um, oh, yeah, I remember now. Um, you know, you can always end up with the the shitty fact that, like, if somebody did do something bad, they can plausibly be like, "Look, I, I'm not wealthy or famous. Like, the consequences of this thing will really ruin my life." And that just ends up complicating and muddying the waters every time. You have to have all these moral calculuses in your head. So yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not a great industry, but it does create some art that is, Oh, you know, I take back what I said earlier when you're talking about comics writers who are well-known Gaiman's probably the, yeah. the only one who's on par with, um, with Stan. Oh, yeah, um, true. I was, I was drawing a blank on exactly. So can, anyway, can I jump off of something? I, I like, it's kind of connected. Please. So, uh, I'm going to assume that, and this is something I think Jake, you brought up when we were talking about this, but I don't know if you brought it up yet that like, did you feel a certain type of way like like you're obviously presenting Stan Lee in a way a lot of us haven't seen and it's, yeah. it's a it's a shock obviously for a lot of like I think just you know regular people I like the, sure my only experience like I'm a huge comic fan but my only experience knowing the history until recently like just reading what people say on Twitter about mm-hmm. Jack Kirby and like 
is like uh if you ever seen the um the g4 show x play mm, like, no i haven't so, what is so that back in the day so it was just a video game review show back in the day mm-hmm. um but they used to have this uh segment called the stan lee experience and it would be like what well, oh oh yeah right right okay, go, go on where are you yeah gonna say? so it's just like this guy in like a cheap like stan lee costume just kind of talking like him and he's always just shitting on jack kirby like that's the whole <laughs> shtick like yeah. whatever marvel game that's so funny. Reviewing, i heard yeah. about that but i hadn't actually watched that that was it's just not on my main i should have looked at that it's hard the, to find i don't think it's on it's hard to find yeah. okay yeah it didn't really didn't cross my my radar but oh that's fascinating yeah it's just something i remember and at, so what when that came out i'm probably like 14 and i'm like really like why is like why are they showing stan lee as like such a garbage person and i found it hilarious yeah, yeah no i mean it's it, it, for a long time the way it's worked is you, you it's word of mouth. It's like somebody at the comic shop, somebody at a con, whatever, tells you, hey kid, did you know that you know Stan isn't so great? That's that's when you start to get, you know, the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um and yet, you know, although that is part of the journey of a comics fan a, a lot of the time, you know, if I, I hope more comics fans have that journey, but it often happens. Um, you know, that's part of uh that's how it used to work. And it would be what I, what I tried to do with this book is go like, can we codify that? But also more importantly, um, investigate it and do it. Even the people who will tell you like, Oh, you know, Jack was ripped off. They don't necessarily really have like facts or research that they've done into that. That's also just word of mouth that they heard from somebody else. It's, you know, whether or not it's true, there's just not, you're not having outlets that are financing actual investigative journalism into this stuff or, or just journalism really at all into this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I wanted with this book to kind of take a stab at that and, and just say that it's a story that everybody should know. Yeah. Like if you, it's not, and not even just if you're into comics or into Marvel or into superheroes, like, it's so emblematic of so many things that are just fucked up in uh, in the contemporary American society. I mean, you have or in the the American twentieth century. Um, well, yeah, like you talk you know, about, like we're supposed to believe the American dream. Like, is this, this, and that? But Stanley, you know, did the opposite. Yeah, Stan was. Well, that was the thing. Yeah, I say that in the introduction. I was like, you know, Stan's whole bit was that he was the embodiment of the American dream, which was if you work hard and stay true to yourself, you'll succeed, right? Yeah. And yet. The and that like that's how you get get ahead, and yet you know the real story of Stan Lee is. I'm not saying he's the devil right, by right. any means. Not I'm not all. trying to cancel Stan <laughs> Lee, but like once you start looking at the 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 actual historical record, you find out that like it's. Uh, I don't know. Can you cancel it's, someone it, once they're dead? How does that? Well, uh, <laughs> I do. I will say I, there are a lot of withering comments I get um, from people who don't like the book. Uh, despite not having read it, um, <laughs> no, I actually I, have a question. I shouldn't get. I have a question about that. Yes, please. Now, because Stanley, like like we mentioned, is is so well loved by mainstream fans and generally comic book fans. Were you hesitant sure. at all to hear that backlash of of them? You know, especially because sure, we all like, know him as like you know, like uh, I'm 32 years old. We're all in our 30s. You know, yeah, we grew up seeing him in these too. cameos. We, he, he was already sure. an old man, so he already has this grandpafied image. And so people, mm-hmm. That also, I think, helps people's image of why they like him so much because it's almost like, oh, you're attacking this little old man. Were you hesitant to? Sure. Well, that's that's large? what people keep saying. I mean, one of the comments I get that's kind of bewildering to me, and yet it makes all the sense in the world why they would be saying it is, you know, how dare you ruin the name of a dead man mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. of a, some, and which is interesting because it's like. 
Well, A, on the face of it, that's just not how society works. You write biographies of, of people who are no longer <laughs> with us. Like just because, I mean, if anything, well, whatever, it's just that's not how the world works. But I get what they're saying, which is they really – Stan means a lot to people. Mm-hmm. People have really incorporated Stan Lee into their lives, into their personal cosmologies, into their sort of personal religious relationship with Marvel and or with the movies or whatever. And you know, there was a line in um, uh, you know, this this Dor- writer Dorian Linsky wrote a review of my book that was really just sort of an essay about it that was was very nice. Um, and he, oh, damn it, I lost my train of thought. What was I just saying? <laughs> said Dorian, uh, Dorian Linsky. Dorian Linsky, right? Um, he, uh, what was the line though? He had a good line in there, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, <laughs> damn it! See, this is what I'm nervous about doing this interview because when it's with just me and my partner, then it's fine. But um, uh, anyway, he means a lot to a lot of people, and I approached this topic with respect for that. Like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's childhood or whatever. That's that's not the goal here. The goal was to tell a, a story that's rooted in evidence and doesn't have any rose-colored glasses. Um, you know, yeah. I never really had that kind of relationship with Stan Lee as a, as a brand, as a, as a person, whatever. Uh, you know, I was very aware of him. I watched the Marvel Action Hour when I was growing up. Um, so I saw those little live-action intros he would do. That was my introduction to him. And then I read comics later, and it was still the era when it was Stan Lee Presents, mm-hmm. insert thing here. Um and then I, I, I will tell you in a moment the story – remind me to tell you the story of when I met him, the one time I ever met him, which was when I was at Wizard World 1998. I believe it was 1998. <laughs> uh, and I went – just it was my first con and – well, I'll just tell you now. So I, I got in line um, and this was 98. So it's Marvel's still in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, Stan is doing nothing. Stan has not had a successful project in decades, um, but he's still technically at Marvel. And the whole industry has cratered in general. So I went to this con. Like this is around when I started reading comics, by the way. That's what I love about the millennial generation is like there's a significant portion of us who like started reading when comics was at its like lowest yes. point. Yeah. <laughs> the and in some ways the creative work as well was like at the worst, especially superhero comics was in the, just the worst place that it had been in a long time. But so Stan was signing that day uh, and I waited in line for like 15 minutes. That was it. Really? Like I, 15 minutes, half hour. Like there was a line, but it wasn't that big. And you didn't have to pay anything to get the signature. You just walk up and hand him something, you would sign it. And like I you there in the book, I have a picture of me getting it's the, the copy beat up copy of Fantastic Four number 47. I'm getting it signed in the photo. Uh it's I, you know, slid it over to Stan. He's dressed up like Stan. My mom takes out this disposable camera um <laughs> that I'd given her so we could document the moment. She takes the photo. That's the image that's frozen, and we have that image now forever. And then the moment, you know, nanosecond after that flash goes off, after what you're seeing in the photo, Stan looks at me, looks at my mom, and I'm not making this up. I, I, there's no reason why I would make this up. He looks at me, looks at my mom, and he says, "You've immortalized me." Holy shit! Yeah, uh, it's pretty weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little weird. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's that's what he said. Um, So flash forward, and um, you know, I, I, but that was although that was a cool moment. I never really developed that kind of uh, emotional relationship with the idea of Stan Lee. But I get why other people have. Um, you know, and I have quotes from people like not just, you know, 
pros and fans and everybody, people who really were moved by the presence of Stan Lee. So the story that I told is not just all negative. Right. It's, it's something it's that not, I found interesting in yeah. the story too, is that like when you present Jack Kirby, you're presenting him just as truthfully, like a lot of his stories, yeah. you know, don't always a lot of add his up. Stories don't add yeah. up. Yeah, sure. Uh, does that mean he was lying? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I can't, I, one of the things that I, I keep saying about this book is like, the number one thing I want to convey is you have to live with ambiguity, mm. whether it's moral ambiguity or factual ambiguity. You have to live with the fact that there are going to be things you never know yeah. that you just don't have a firm answer on because mm. people fucking hate thinking about that. That's not people being dumb. That's just the human brain doesn't want to have ambiguity. Ambiguity is is it, it, it it's dangerous. Right. Um, and the message I was sort of trying to convey is like – Stan is neither saint nor sinner. I mean, he was, a, you know, neither saint nor Satan. Um, <laughs> and, and you know who else is that way? Literally everybody. Yeah. Like, it, it's just, it sounds so simple. It's like the, this dumb, almost truism to say something like that. But you have to remind people, especially when it comes to contemporary celebrities. Mm. Um, you know, people really have this, you know, lowercase s Stan culture right now, where it's like, you, you, the thing you love is the greatest thing in the world, and the people who make it, um, or the person you identify it with, is 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 you know the second coming, mm-hmm. and then that's how people get away with shit. You know, you treat celebrities like they're not real people, and you end up with like fucking Justin Timberlake. You know, <laughs> like only now are people waking up to the fact that the guy sucks. Hey, hey, um, Alpha Dog is a great movie. <laughs> I'm, a fan of, no, I'm a huge fan of Southland Tales. I think Justin Timberlake is great in Southland Tales. But no, but like my point being, when you worship somebody like that, they can get away with anything because mm. you're not looking for it. And then, you know, on the converse, just in terms of like ruining your brain, sometimes something will happen that causes you to criticize that person. And then they're just human excrement yeah. to you. Yeah. You know, you, you just, it's all or nothing. And it's just not a healthy way to live your emotional and mental life. But it's really hard to accept that there are things you can't, there are questions you can't answer about a person, whether it's, did this thing happen? Who knows? Or was this person a good person or a bad person? Well, there's no real answer to that. You when know, you were, it's not uh, just that you won't know. When you were doing your research, uh, did you ever have, did you have one of those like noir moments where someone came out and was like, Abraham, you're digging too deep. You need to turn. <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah. asking the wrong questions. Turn around. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into details, but there, there were a number of people who wanted to chase me off the story. I mean, there's a lot that people, you know, when people read the book, they'll see why. Like, there's there's a lot of bad stuff that happened in Stan Lee's yeah. life and a lot of money on the line and a lot of people's legal futures in, on the line. Um, you know, so there were a lot of people who tried to not like buy me off, but, you know, tried to charm me into portraying them well or tried to bully me into portraying them well or, or you know, leave veiled threats. I'm picturing like Sopranos happen. goons coming up to you. <laughs> it's not quite that. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not quite like that. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I don't want to get into too much detail because I don't want right, to, you know, all right. but it's, it's a sensitive topic, but it's, it was interesting to have the situation where there were things that people didn't want me to know. And, uh, and then that other people really wanted me to know. So I'd hear about it from the other person. So, mm. you know, it's, it was a real long 
wild process reporting this. So can, sorry, can I go back to something you were talking about? Just like the way, like you have to present a person, obviously saint, saint or Satan or whatever, because I know you're working on, um, something like another, uh, Yeah, writing a biography of Vince McMahon next. I I have a contract with Simon and Schuster to do that one. Yeah. Um, another very complicated figure. I don't want to get too much into Vince just because I want to hold my powder for when I write the book, but, um, but no, I mean, another person who, um, there are a lot of parallels with Stan. Okay, this that's is, yeah, that's what of, I wanted to ask. Okay, yeah, a lot of differences, but they are both people who you know. And this is, I think, not spoiling anything that might be in the Vince book. They're both people who really took industries that were regarded as redheaded stepchildren. I can say that because I'm a redheaded <laughs> <and a> stepchild. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they took these industries and made them cool, which is very difficult to do, um, and had not really been done before either of them pulled it off. Um, and like, like hip, you know, right. not just because both wrestling and comics had been huge po- popular things, mm-hmm. but they were never really regarded as like, other than like the occasional Roland Bart essay, it was never really considered like high, high culture, mm-hmm. much less hip, you know, something that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, much as, you know, uh, Stan in the sixties made comics cool thanks to the Marvel revolution and his sale selling of it. You then have Vince really on like a couple of occasions, but especially in the late nineties, really just making wrestling this, this very sexy commodity, both literally and figuratively. And, um, you know, I'm fascinated by people who are able to do that. Um, and what drives them to do that sort of thing and what the impact is of the fact that the person who did that was them. You know, mm-hmm. there's always this big question of like, well, if this person had never been born, if Stan or Vince had never been born, what would have happened to comics or wrestling respectively? And you can never know the answer to that, right. but it's something that's important to contemplate because it makes you consider who the other people in the arena were and kind of the ways that it could have gone. Right, um, and I'm sure their and, influence extends outside their own arena. So it just like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In both cases, well, especially with Vince, mm-hmm. their, their influence is far beyond just their industry. Um, and you know they, that's where it gets a little more complicated. Vince has a lot more power than Stan ever really had. Um, Stan was, you know, I get when he was publisher of magazine management, that was a fair amount of power. But he wasn't even the owner. I mean, the owner was this Cadence Industries, this corporate entity. He never had that kind of power of life or death that Vince does, and you know can, has had and continues to have, and has had for decades and decades. Right. Um, so it's, it's a different kind of power relationship, but it is still similarly like this paterfamilias character who, uh, had a tremendous amount of impact and, um, has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Let's, I'll, I'll, Keep it that vague. Gotcha. No, yeah. I, I love it. I can't wait to read more about that. Yeah, that one's a challenge because I I have I hadn't been following wrestling in longer than I hadn't been following comics. Gotcha. Um, so I've had to really jump back in. Um, and past couple of months I've I've been just shot because it's all Stan all the time. I have to. Right. I was doing all the. I mean, the way book tours work now, like I said, is just doing media. Like there's no there's nothing else that you do. So it was just me leveraging every connection I had and like following up on every email and like. Mm-hmm. That's just how, and just because the resources and fame aren't there to have book authors more easily promote, uh, you know, or get promoted. I, you, I, I used to be a writer's assistant for uh, WWE, and my uh, <laughs> yeah. fiance. Oh no, kidding! And my fiance was a production, like a production manager there. So, 
we have. I got to interview you. Yeah, we. I mean, I was only there. Listen, I was only there for like five or six months. It's not like I know like the ins and outs, but uh, but still, yeah. I, I love li- the little stories. Are often things that sort of you know people who are just there for a flash moment. Yeah, right. That's very often some of the most interesting stuff. Because I met Vince um, a couple times and everything. Oh, you did. Yeah. Oh wow. Don't save this good okay, stuff. Cool. I'm going to contact you afterward and we can negotiate awesome. something. I'd love to. I'd love to hear about. Yeah. That. Yeah. I'm, my fiance too. She probably has way more. She was there for like a year, but. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'll, I'll get into, Oh, I'm so glad I replied to this tweet. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I've cultivated a source. You've immortalized, you've immortalized me, Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Bringing it back. Jeez. Uh, uh, all right. What else you got? Hey, if you had to, uh, if you had to write about any superhero, who, who would it be? Like, what do you if mean? You like, like write a biography oh, of no, a superhero? I mean, like, or would you ever like, I know you do obviously like journalistic writing, but if you were to write a story mm-hmm. about a superhero, like, Oh, Oh, not like a, not nonfiction, yeah, yeah, like write yeah, fiction. Like fiction. Oh, well, no, that's easy. My dream, my ultimate dream, I, you know, I'm Jewish. I think way too much about being Jewish. My ultimate dream is to write the most badass fucking, um, Jewish as shit. Magneto story. Yes. Like I just want I want the Jewiest, Jewiest <laughs> and Jewiest uh, Magneto because he's he is the best bad Jew in fiction. Yeah. Like there is nobody who is better at being like just a fucking dickhead, but also one of ours. Like, that's <laughs> such a great feeling. Like, well, every population has this. Like every every you know demographic slice, whatever you want to call somebody, whatever vector you want to look at, and like that, you have to have characters where you can see yourself in how like just like selfish and shitty they are or like how fucked up they are or whatever, not have them be these shining paragons. Like this is why Harley Quinn is way more popular than Wonder Woman and nobody wants to say that, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like Harley Quinn's reach extends way beyond just like people who actually watch superhero movies. Like that's just metastasized. My two-year-old and, niece asked to be Harley Quinn for Halloween. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> Harley is just iconic. And the re I wrote this whole long feature about Harley's development and reception uh, back in, I believe 2015. And you know, what I ended with was this quote from this, uh, this one Harley cosplayer who was like the reason I love her is because she gets to be completely messy. Like she's just a total mess. And usually female characters in superhero comics are just written as like fucking, you know, Wonder Woman or, you know, any number of other, you know, just sort of like bland kind of doesn't want to offend anybody. Have to be perfect These are characters, for some reason. Yeah, characters that just like are so perfect because everyone's so afraid of offending. And that makes sense. Like, I would rather people be bland and not offended. Um, but, you know, if you can pull it off, the ultimate magic is being able to have a character where it comes from a very, a place of respect for the community that you're writing about, uh, that this person is plucked from, but at the same time depicts them as like a fucking mess of a human being, because that's something that we can all relate to. Mm -hmm. And Magneto, I feel like is just for the Jewish population, the best example of like, here's this guy who's like you know, could not be more Jewish, right? Like he's a fucking Holocaust survivor. Like he he went through it. And he, at the same time, like came out with this lesson that makes sense, sure, but also is like fucking genocidal. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's such a badass move. Like 
you know, it's hard, it's hard to know, know exactly who to credit for that transition. Like I, I wrote this article uh, two years ago now when Dark Phoenix came out about how Magneto became Jewish, which again was the story that I thought was just out there. I assumed I just didn't know mm-hmm. it, but like at what point he became canonically Jewish uh, and, or, you know, basically canonically later it was fully canonically. And, you know, it turned out that it was just like, Chris Claremont, who A, I found out was Jewish, which is crazy to me because the yeah, name Chris Claremont, Claremont yeah, betrays him. Wow. No Yiddish guy. Well, he's 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 a he's a matrilineal Jew. So his his father uh is not Jewish, um, but his mother is. And by Jewish law, that means he's fully Jewish. You your just your mother has to be has to be Jewish. Well, you can go into a whole conversation about Jewish law later, but um, <laughs> Claremont was was Jewish and, uh, you know, not like practicing, but he, he was aware and he went to Israel and lived on a kibbutz for a little bit. And, um, you know, he, he was the guy who went, you know, it makes more sense for this character if he's Jewish um, and like lived in, you know, was in the camps. And it's a brilliant narrative decision. And Claremont obviously respects Jews. He's not, you know, he's, he's one of us and he's doing this story and he did so tastefully and so fascinatingly. And it became just fundamental to who this character is. Um, you know, I mean, the first X-Men movie, it opens with Magneto, with Eric in Auschwitz, like tearing up the metal. Like that's, that's the first fucking thing you see in the entire franchise is Jewish trauma and, and the suffering of uh, a population that's trying to, it's somebody's trying to annihilate. And the, but he comes out on the other side and he's not some kindly grandpa who preaches peace. He's this complete asshole. Like not only does he have a genocidal program, he's a total dick about it too. Like he's not a pleasant guy to deal with. And I love that. And, and then you add in the like interesting biographical details that Claremont came up with for him. Like the thing everybody forgets is, and this is what my ideal story is. I'll just pitch you the story. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me about yes. this and for me to be high enough that I can describe yeah. it. But, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's um, where Eric and Charles met. Do you guys, do, do you know canonically in the comics where Eric and Charles met? So okay. I, th- I thought you canonically don't. they actually met over like in the Middle East or outside of North America. Yep. Uh, like, yep. Uh, where? Uh, where? Egypt? No. Nope. They met in Israel. Oh. Okay. They meet in the Jewish state, which if you are Jewish is fucking fascinating. Like, you know, Israel is the big other in the Jewish community. It's just that it's the other thing that exists that everything sort of orbits around and exists in dialogue with. Um, and so – if you're interested in Israel and Zionism and that 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 part of the world, the way it's developed, and the uh, way it re- interacts with the fundamental Jewishness of of existence, um, you know you're going to find it fascinating that Eric is you know when he gets out of the camps, he goes to Israel, he makes Aliyah, and he uh, he lives there. And Israel is a very specific and very ideologically um, influential environment to be in. And being there in the 40s and 50s was very specific. And what I really want to do is tell the story of Charles and Eric meeting in Israel. Awesome. And like the, Claremont did, the, get, did this just little grace note in his story where he introduced their first meeting, where they're in Israel and there's just this two-page spread. I believe it's two pages. Maybe it's just one where it's um, – uh, basically he, the two of them, Eric and Charles and Gabrielle Haller, um, the, um, the fellow camp survivor who, um, Charles is in, in country to work with cause he's doing psychology stuff with her. She's like in a catatonic state. Anyway, there's this little grace note where like 
um, they go uh, for uh, they walk around and travel around uh, Israel. Like there's just this montage of like there's no details given about what's happening while they're doing it. It's just like they went on this trip. So it's just this huge gap where like somebody can tell the story of these people, these Jews. Uh, well, not Charles isn't Jewish, but you know, the being in the Jewish state and especially Magneto's perspective on like meeting this guy who also, this is the reason why it would have to be fanfic and could never actually be Marvel <laughs> because, but no, because Charles and Eric fuck like that's not to sound like too much of a weirdo about it, but like, I just don't, I love, I so vastly prefer the interpretation that they had a romantic and sexual relationship prior to like, no, I'm serious. I, I, I mean, anyway, I, I don't have to go down that road no, too much if it's going to scandalize yeah, I love you. But that. Yeah. Go down that road. I, just, I think it, I'm not saying it just because I think it's hot. Uh, it's, it, I just think it makes more. No, I just think it makes more sense narratively and thematically when you see the way, I mean, especially in the X-Men movies where like very obviously Picard. Oh my God. Call him Picard. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, don't tell anybody that bad. Uh, where you have Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen very clearly playing it as though they're ex-boyfriends. But like, you know, it's not canon there, but like it works so it works so well because A, it just defines that relationship and it defines the lack of relationship or the, the way the relationship turns sour. Like it creates that, I mean, who wouldn't you turn into a supervillain if like your ex was trying to take over the world? Like you would, you know, like, like trying to inf- change the world in a way you didn't like, like it, it's, it, it, it's a special kind of, um, it's almost of, petty of visceral <laughs> like ideological, but it's also petty. And, and what's great in like good fanfic about that stuff is it's like both men, especially Magneto don't really, Eric don't really know the degree to which the, like where the pettiness ends and the actual ideology begins where it's like, am I just doing this? Cause I have this weird relationship with this guy and I can't let go. Or do I actually have a principled disagreement with him? And that's the real driving force. And does it matter if I like, these are the, I mean, my ideal story would have be like two, either it would, it would either probably I would debate whether I want it to be set and entirely take place during the trip in Israel or whether I want that to be flashbacks and have the core thing be something set more contemporaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, I would not really have any action in it. Like this is, right. this is something that Marvel would never let me do. It would have to, if I did it, I would have to file the series off and just write something based on it. But like, I just, I want something that's like a talky piece where like Magneto is talking about what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be an Israeli, what it means to have survived the camps, all of this shit. And talking to Charles, who's like a genius, but also a complete idiot about so many <laughs> yeah. things. Well, also, you know, in, in the comics, Magneto finds the mutant island of Genosha, which is very, like, sure. very much a parallel. Now Krakoa, which yeah. is very much an Israel metaphor yeah. oh, in certain sure. specific ways. No, well, that's the thing. That was what made me start thinking about it, was reading uh, the first issue of House of X um, last year. Yeah, that was great. Was two years ago yeah. now an amazing issue of a comic book, like one of the best single superhero issues I've ever read. And the, like seeing the way that Hickman, who I don't know whether he's Jewish or not. I I once asked him and he didn't answer the question. So who knows? Um, But uh, it was over email. So he just ignored that. I asked. But anyway, but the point is he, he knows his shit, like whether or not he's Jewish, he gets the dynamics that play into Zionism and, this idea of, of sort of separatist um, uh, self-defense. Um, that guy's so smart. I love Hickman. Hickman's a very smart writer. Very, very smart writer. And that was what got me thinking about it. I was like, why has nobody done a story about like this directly about Magneto and Israel? Like it's very specifically alluding to that relationship 
in the in House of X because he brings all of the um, the ambassadors uh, to uh, Jerusalem. He brings them to the old city of Jerusalem, and that's where he says you have new gods now. Um, you know, it's very deliberately placed in the Holy Land. And, um, that was got my, got me thinking like somebody needs to write the story of like how that relationship works in his head and how it's bound up with his relationship with this, this man he loves and also hates. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my, that's my vague pitch. I have no idea how I'd actually write it. I have to do a lot more research so I could get like period things correct but like I, I i do have a burning desire to someday write that nice. i really like that i feel like it would be like such a definitive story for the- yeah i feel like you could really do some i mean maybe it's not even me doing it maybe i just like bully some other <laughs> jewish creator into doing it and just you know i, I i'll just stay out of it i just because that's the thing i just want to see it exist it's not that i think like i need to write it it's more just nobody else seems to be writing it so maybe i have to do it but if i could get if i could get somebody who's like really you know, a lot better at writing comics because Lord knows I haven't or writing superhero stories because I also haven't done that or writing fiction at all because I haven't <laughs> really done that. Um, you know, that then I would, I, you know, happy to offer any kind of unpaid and uncredited advice that that person might need. I just want to see this thing exist. <laughs> who, who would you cast as Magneto in, in an MCU reboot? An MCU reboot. Hmm. No, that's, see, that's where it gets complicated because I do see the point that people make when there's like rumors that, um, you know, a black person who's not Jewish is, is going to get cast mm-hmm. as, as Magneto. Yeah. You know, people will be like, well, you know, this is, this is, you know, erasing Jews, whatever. And I get it. I get where that's coming from, but I do think it's portable enough. Right. They're also based off of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King anyways. Well, not really. I mean, it's, it wasn't that that's, that's a misconception, but it, but it comes from a, it comes from a cultural milieu that like, I guess is sort of like that, but no, that's, that's a common misconception. That was not the truth. Um, but, uh, it's part of the Stanley myth, you know, people, (laughs) people believe, um, but like, but the point is like, yeah, but you make the right point, which is these are archetypes. Like it doesn't have, I personally don't think Magneto has to be Jewish. I just think mm-hmm. it works really well that he's Jewish. I think there are other experiences that you can have that character go through that will lead him to similar conclusions. And if anything, this is the part where I get really heretical. I think it should probably not be a Jew because the thing is the Jewish trauma that that Magneto is responding to, aka the fucking Holocaust, is something that somebody – of the right age to be in this story can't have experienced. And I don't want to see some like Jewish character and then like have him go through some kind of like minor trauma compared to the Holocaust. Also like anti-Semitism in the way that it existed prior to the Holocaust just is not in in that mode, just doesn't exist anymore and hasn't. So it's like, it would be so dishonest and shitty. I'd much rather, in fact, have it be somebody who is not Jewish, um, at least if they're going to go with sort of that that trauma motivator, which I think you kind of have yeah. to do with. with I mean, that's interesting. We talked about this in the first episode. We brought this up at that point, especially that like, especially in the MCU timeline, they're already even further ahead in years. So just, yeah. just by that point, like Magneto having a backstory where he was like alive during the Holocaust, it. It, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah. I mean, well, especially you could maybe do it that like he was alive then and like his magnet powers keep him deep. <laughs> that's what I said. You know, I would like, cause it, well, that's what they say yeah, in the, the comics, comics too, but like controlled magnetism, you can like stop. Yeah, and like, I mean, it's just one of those things where you just like, don't, you're just supposed to not think too hard mm-hmm. about it. Um, and I think that would be weird, but also like, um, You'd have to have. It's important that he be actually the same, roughly the same age as Charles. I think. Right. I, I think they have to have come from similar worlds mm. and have similar perspectives, and not have it be like one of them is is an ancient person and the other person is is much younger. I, I like this idea that they're about at parity 
but have had just radically different lives that have led them to radically different conclusions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, when you were writing the book, did you find that you had to leave stuff uh, for lack of a better phrase on the editing floor that you would have otherwise liked to see in the Sure. Oh, there's plenty in there. I mean, I'm, I'm writing some things for, uh, for, well, I'm writing one thing for another outlet that, um, is picking up some of my scraps and odds and ends, but, um, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, one, one thing that I I'm hoping to do if I can get permission from the people, uh, involved is I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to print the full transcripts of uh, a number of my interviews of the, of the, the interviews that were most, in, I think, important for comics history and comics journalism. Nice. Um, I did some interviews that just had a lot of rich detail that had never been said before. And I included a lot of that in the book, but you obviously, you're not publishing a full transcript in the book. So there's, there's, a, I mean, the, the big ones that stick out in my mind are, you know, I have about five and a half hours of interview with Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, oh, wow. um, which is a lot of material. Yeah. And he said a lot of interesting stuff, not all of it about Stan. I mean, a lot, it was, Stan was the sort of, excuse me, organizing factor, but it was, it was also, you know, about just his career and about the industry and about people he knew. And that stuff I think would be really, it, there's stuff in there that I'm sure doesn't even mean anything to me, but like hardcore comics heads who are older than me and like lived through whatever, um, will pick up on and go, oh, wow, this, this is something that's really useful to be out in there. It also seems the like, other one oh, is, sorry, I was going to say, okay. it just seemed like Larry Lieber was like a voice of reason a little bit because he has, no, you, like you yeah. pointed out, he has nothing really to gain. Like he doesn't really want to have anything to do with Marvel or. No, no, he, he, um, you know, you can never know fully a hundred percent whether somebody's telling mm -hmm. the truth, maybe they're lying or maybe they just don't remember or misremember. Um, but the sense I got was Larry was not trying to hide anything. Um, when he, or not hide, he, when he was talking about the comics industry, he was not trying to take more credit than he deserved because he doesn't really care about credit in the comics industry because he kind of regrets that he got into the comics industry in the first uh -huh. place. Um, he does not have a good thoughts about his career, which is, you know, very sad because he did some amazing work. Um, but, you know, I, I've, it, it, it's, it's, he's, he was a fascinating conversation to have and an important figure that I, I want to have, um, understood. Um, and so my hope is I can get his permission to publish that. Um, Thanks. the, uh, other one is Nat Friedland. This is a much shorter interview, but still a really fascinating one. Nat Friedland being this journalist who, uh, wrote this profile of Marvel comics in 1965 it was published the first week of 1966. Um, that completely ruined the Stan Lee-Jack Kirby relationship. It was this article in the New York Herald Tribune's magazine section, which, by the way, later became New York Magazine. So oh, wow. there's – and, and prior to that, there had been weird points where the New York Herald Tribune had intersected with Stan's life. So right. for whatever reason, I'm part of that that cosmic chain. <laughs> uh, um, you know, you, uh, Nat Freeland wrote this, this profile of Marvel and it was so glowing in its depiction of Stan and so disrespectful and and – uh, shitty in its depiction of Jack. Um, and it came out and even though Stan was not like writing the article, it was this moment where Jack realized he was never going to be appreciated at Marvel. Like the, just no one was ever going to get what he was and what he was doing. So even though it's 1966 and Jack sticks around until, you know, late 69, 70, um, that was really the, the moment when he decided he was going to leave and not invent new characters and just sort of wait it out. Um, so the point is, Nat Freeland wrote this article. It's massively consequential in comics history and therefore in pop culture history in general. He had no idea. No one had ever reached out to him. He, he's a hard guy to find. I found him on some online database. Uh, I can't remember which people find her database it was, but I just found his email address. I emailed him. I said, can I talk to you? <laughs> 
Miss Chat Roulette, right? exactly. I, I said, so I just sent him an email and said, you know, I'm doing this book. Can I interview you? And initially he he called me and he says, uh, tell me more about this. I told him more and he said, uh, not interested. Mm. And then I I just sort of did a Hail Mary and wrote him again. I was like, can, or maybe he called only the second time. But the point was he, he rejected me the first time. And I just did like the most pathetic pretty please. Like I just <laughs> contacted him again and was like, I don't have any thing I can bargain with. I just would love to talk to you. Like, please, 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 can I talk to you? And he said, yes. So we had this great conversation. It was a pair of conversations actually, where I just completely introduced him to the fact that this article had had any impact. He, he like had just moved on in his life wow. and hadn't thought about it in decades. He'd thought about it in November, 2018 when Stan died, because he read an article in Wired about Stan's uh, life and legacy and how it was complicated. And he read that and he was like, oh, Stan Lee. Yeah, I remember writing an article about him. And then like, I call him up a few months later and he's like, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Why? Why are you asking? And I was like, oh, you don't, you don't get it. Like, you don't know. And he's like, I don't know what. And I'm like, you don't know that like this article was massively consequential in the comics world and among comics historians is held up as this seminal document that is like a turning point for the medium and for the genre and for everything. And he was just like, I had no clue. No one had ever told him. That. Oh. So we had, the, and no one had tracked him down. Now, this is a guy that people have tried to find. Comics historians have tried to find unsuccessfully. And I don't know why I was successful. I didn't do anything special. I think it just, maybe his email address popped up in some crawler and finally it was available. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that interview is important. I mean, there was stuff in there that illuminated how that article happened and what went into it and in the aftermath of it. Um, and I, I found it fascinating. My, my hope is I can get his permission to just publish that interview just on my website or something for free, just so people can have access to it and incorporate it into whatever research they do. Because the comics historian world of just amateur comics historians who like all have day jobs and just do this because just for the love of the mm -hmm. game and are the experts on this stuff, um, you know, I owe them everything. I mean, I, 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 a lot of this book would not have been possible if I didn't have if I wasn't standing on the research that those people had done. Um, so I want to just contribute back to that and be like, okay, well, here's something that may be of interest and, and may help in future uh, attempts to suss out what makes this industry so fucked up, <laughs> you know, how, how it turned into what it is today. Yeah. I feel like this is a, it's gotta be one of the most important books on comics history of all time. Which? Your book. Mine? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. there aren't that many. So, <laughs> but, but I, I thank you. My, my hope is that it will have, uh, I mean, look, beyond tooting my own horn, I just hope it does legitimize comics journalism and history a bit because, and like legitimize it to the point where people can get resources to do it because it's really fucking important and it's a shit shame that there is no backing for it happening. So, you know, I'm not going to be under any illusion that this book is going to like, you know, mean reams of investigative journalism to the comics industry as much as that may be necessary. Um, but hopefully it can encourage editors to be a little more um, excited about the idea of publishing stuff about the comics industry. That would, that would, I would count that as a win more so than really almost anything else. Yeah, I'm hungry for more for sure. So, and I'm hungry for lunch. So I'm going <laughs> to bounce off. But, uh, yeah. Um, well, dude, are we good? Yeah, yeah, we're totally good. Dude, thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. Dude, this was great. Yeah. You got to have me back on. I, I have not, I've never done like a stoned interview about like <laughs> comics before. This was, this was the best. Dude, um, thank you. Yeah, next time I got an article coming out or something, I'll hit you guys up and we can we can set this up. Yeah, so, man, cool. I, uh, that sounds great. 
Yeah. So cool. Uh, Abraham Reisman, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, his book. Uh, shit, I'm too high. <laughs> True Believer, I got it. True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stanley is out right now. <laughs> you can go by Yeah, it. it's available where books are sold. You can go to uh, abrahamreisman.com and you'll find links there as well as blurbs and descriptions and everything. Although I guess if you've listened to this whole episode by now, you probably know whether or not you're going to want to buy the book. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I don't think additional information is going to be all that important to you. But um, but yeah, abrahamreisman.com. It's I before E. Dude, thank, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, that was really awesome of you. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Hey, right, take man. care. Bye. Have a great one. Talk to you soon. Dude, uh, I am hungry too, but. Uh... Are we still recording? I think we're still recording. Oh.